For this episode, I'm going to be talking to Hamish Lamley of Pictavia Leather in Scotland, and we are going to be discussing the Picts. So on this occasion, I'm here with Hamish Lamley of Pictavia Leather. How are you doing, Hamish? Darning my Pictish jumper <laughs> currently. <laughs> I'm good, thanks. I'm glad to hear it. So, on, so we are going to attempt to talk about the Picts. We're going to attempt, yes. Yeah, an attempt is the word. Okay. So um, who were the Picts? When did they come into time and space? So they come in, really, you're talking about proto-picts, kind of first, first century AD. And that's when you've got the, the Romans coming into Scotland, coming across uh, various tribes. There's about 16 documented. So this is what you're talking about, early Iron Age tribes that have various names like Maitai, Caledoni, and these are just loose Iron Age tribes uh, living and trading in Scotland. And then as the Romans come and start um, oppressing these tribes, through oppression, they start to come together. And it's in the kind of 3rd century that the Romans start mentioning the Picti. So they're talking about all native peoples of Scotland. And that Picti term has got loads of different kind of origins to it, if it means the painted people, or if it actually meant Pretenni, which was a name they used for Britain, which is where Britain actually gets its name from. It just kind of means kind of local people of the island. So we don't really know where that term comes from, but that's where the kind of Picts first gets mentioned. But it's not of a unified people. It's not of a polity or a culture. It's just of the tribes in the north. That's all it means. I heard something about the idea that maybe it it was a reference to the, the seamen uh, skills as well. Yeah. To the boat, like to the boats. Yeah, there's loads of different origin myths. So there's myths that the the Picts came from Scythia through Ireland, and weren't allowed to take their own women. And there's there's all sorts of crazy origin myths, but really it comes down to the kind of uh, Roman references to them. Yeah. And then what comes after from the Irish references and a little bit from Bede, which you always have to take with a pinch of salt. Yeah, I always think it's interesting that when they call. Well, with that idea of calling them the painted people, uh, the Picts, that it's um, it's it's kind of interesting because the Romans knew full well what you know what they called their tattoos, what they called tattooing. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there's a bit of unsurety about whether or not that comes down to them being painted with with woad or tattoos is is a little odd. But there are descriptions of them, you know. That you could allude to to both ideas, right? Yeah, I mean, it really, that the main one it references that they were adorned with beasts up up their arms, so that could have been painted or tattooed, but at least points towards what they were decorating themselves with, what they thought was important. It just doesn't really speculate on the method, but yeah. I think it's fair to say both could have easily been in practice. So I'm not really bothered where the line lays on that when you're looking at 
what we're doing today with tattooing, how authentic it is. I think whether it's body painting or tattooing, it's authentic in its own right. It's following the same rules, so I don't think it matters too much. Yeah. 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 All right. So now we have the picks. We have the proto picks. The proto picks. Proto picks. <laughs> they don't really become the picks until the fourth, fifth century. So that's the Romans are oppressing them, pushes them all together. And then as the Romans withdraw in 410, um, that's when you've suddenly got all these early medieval kingdoms suddenly not having this oppressor, so they start forming their own cultural identities. And that's when you find the Picts calling themselves the Picts. That's when they have a king, and that's when they have... They have sub-kingdoms, but they have a kind of over-king. And that's when they start a certain dominance as a culture. Um, and it kind of goes from then, from that kind of 4th, 5th century, all the way through to the ninth century. So that's really, if you're talking about the Pictish culture, that's the real heart of it there. Mm. With the uh, the art styles, there's there's this, they're, they're put into three categories as well. Do they also reflect those three stages? Uh, they do somewhat. So you've got that that really early Celtic style before they become Picts, which is similar to the Celtic style all around the British Isles. And then when the Romans come in, the Romans actually uh, we see evidence of stone carving. And that's when we've started to realise the evidence of stone carving in Scotland. So I wonder if it's opposition to Roman carving, sort of recognising the Romans putting their stamp on the land and then the Picts start discovering, well, we, we need to do the same and stamp ours. So you see the early stone carvings come out, but they're just scribed in the stone. They don't, they don't have any relief. They're just very basic. But you see those pagan symbols coming out that are completely unique to the Picts. Hmm. And then... As the Romans leave and the Picts start to Christianize, then you see the Christian artwork coming in. And that's when you see that next change. Yeah. It's also very interesting, sort of hybrid between the two and and well, what seems like the beginnings as well. When you get like the uh, the uh, animal-headed warriors and all yeah. that sort of stuff as well. You get all sorts of crazy stuff. And, it, and it's like the, the kind of Christians did everywhere, sort of taking the native symbols and saying, oh, it's okay, those are part of our stuff too. And they just sneak it in there and it makes people, cultures, comfortable enough to go with a new creed. Mm. And actually, the, the blend works really well with Pictish stuff because they, they fit the symbols in quite beautifully. And they fit the language in too with Om inscribed in the stones. You suddenly see that jump into Christian stuff as well. So actually, the, the artwork blends itself really nicely between the two. It's kind of... Um, it is interesting to see that within Britain that there seem to be well, obviously from how it looks that there was at least a, a part of the community that was quite eager to pick up Christianity and incorporate it into the, you know, whatever that was going on. And again, like like you say, like at the time they would have they would have certainly have said, like, Oh, you know, your thing, our thing, it's not that different, you know, just let's get the foot through the door and we'll go from there. Well, why wouldn't you want to Christianize? When you think of the the political and the economic landscape, you've got uh, a culture that's on the, the edge of the world, the edge of the Western world, it speaks uh, a really small insular language and it trades within small kingdoms on a small island. As soon as you Christianize, you can govern your people better. You suddenly have a new language that connects you to the rest of the world, that connects your trade to the rest of the world, and you can send people for training to other Christian centers. So what it does is it opens up your entire culture to the rest of the world lets that power flow through 
and you're suddenly ahead above everyone around you. Yeah. So I think it's um, entirely reasonable to see why people would Christianize, and it would have been seen as a very good thing. Mm. So it's it's fair enough, really. And uh, when you look at just aside from faith, just the economics of it, it really helps put the picks or any culture of the time on that center stage, along with every other culture. So it's kind of to stand up and be recognized with everyone else. I think. Yeah. It's uh, it's very interesting as well because obviously you could say there was the Romans that would have brought that with them um, or helping to sort of bring more things to the island. I mean, it might not necessarily have been the Romans that brought it, but they certainly encouraged trade and everything to the to the island. Well, the, the Romans kind of encouraged trade, but they used their trade to dominate local tribes too. So in Scotland, um, they were looking at how certain silver deposits showed um, through time, uh, different time periods, silver would flood a certain tribe. And they believe it's because Romans would flood one tribe with silver, build them up against everyone else. And then when that tribe were looking really powerful, they'd stop the flow of silver and give it to another tribe. And it worked just to destabilize the entire culture around itself. So they were pretty smart about that. There's been excavations, well, that I've heard of of, of the the Romans attacking hill forts and so on, just as they did in the rest of Britain as well. And obviously, it just seemed that they got to a point where they they hit a bit of a wall, and then they built a wall. Yeah, well, you kind of see every time the Romans fight through Scotland, they always get so far. They they overextend every <clears> time. <throat> they get so far up in Scotland. They they kind of hit a block, so they build a wall, they build a defence. So you've got Hadrian's Wall, then the Antonine Wall, then the Gask Ridge further north. And they stall every single time due to guerrilla warfare tactics. And then they have to withdraw. And they never have enough of a campaign to keep pushing. And I, I, I kind of understand why, because there's no resources in Scotland. Why were they trying so hard to conquer the north when there's nothing there? There's no natural resources they needed. I wonder if it was more political than anything because mm. it spanned the reign of four emperors. So I wonder if it's every emperor that comes into power kind of uses it as a political stance. You know, the previous emperor couldn't tame the barbarians. I'll be the one to do it and push in political campaigns north. And it just failed every time. And it was just a, a waste of uh, material and resources, really. And and when it comes down to it, the, the Picts didn't fight the Romans off. The Romans withdrew to put their troops elsewhere, that would benefit them more. Um, we didn't, certainly didn't fight them off. We just made it difficult enough for long enough that it really wasn't worth it. Yeah, I think it's also worth stating that Scotland would have been a lot more heavily forested at, back yeah. at that time as well, yeah. just as many other areas of Britain. It would have been a tough landscape to come into, especially where the Romans were taking their troops from to send to Scotland. So there's uh, reports of them taking other native Celtic auxiliaries that they'd indoctrinated and sending them forth into Scotland as scouts. And then they'd go native and then set, help set ambushes against the Romans. So <laughs> tactics don't always work out for them as well. Hmm. What do you think is the, uh, what do you think is the uh, reality then of the, the Pic- early Pictish warriors has been naked men uh, with blue swirls all over them? I think that sounds like a very easy way to die, (laughs) to be honest. When you look at Roman warfare and how sophisticated it was, I don't think that's enough to overpower it. 
Um, it's difficult because a lot of the sources do come from Romans, uh, like Tacitus, and they are quite biased, and they're always kind of downplaying that barbarian vibe. So it makes sense. Maybe there's there's they'd seen certain things and they just exaggerated it. But you're talking about a culture that was really well developed, like all the other Celtic cultures at the time. Um, we just like a lot of things. We have lack of evidence. We don't have the material finds to prove otherwise, and that's I think why these myths have populated so long, because there's not definitive proof to the contrary. Yeah. But it's interesting to think uh, how they did f- kind of fight back the Romans, and uh, we know their art style, so we know they were painting or tattooing their bodies. They would have wanted to show that off. And without any finds of armor and such, as I say, it's hard to say. Um, but I think it's an image that's going to be around for a long time mm. until we have other evidence. It's kind of it's it's always going to be a tough one, and where are you going to fall on that line? Because there's there's no evidence either way. Um, and I think those kind of fifteenth century paintings have really not helped. They've just kind of tortured the Pictish image. <laughs> Yeah. So it's nice to kind of see people start trying to bring that back and start trying to show Pictish artwork and what that looks like on the body and redesign or reinterpret how the Pictish art fit with the body and how how they would see themselves, how they, were, they would portray themselves as well. And it's not these mad naked barbarians, not when you have a culture that's so sophisticated. Mm. Um, not to say they weren't looking fearsome, but yeah. I, you know, I rolled with the idea just for fun when I, um, I updated some of those images from the 1500s, uh, for, for a blog that we did together, you yeah. know, also for Northern Fire. And it was really interesting to see where the, at least some of the ideas for those 15th century drawings had come from. So like say, um, Julius Caesar, uh, he, he described, I'm not sure if he was describing the Picts in particular, just people of Britain, as saying that they were, they would fight naked, with they would have like, they would shave off all of their body hair except for the moustache and the hair, and uh, they would have a chain belt that they'd have their sword hanging on. Um, I can't remember all of the details about it, but it was really interesting to see that some of the things that were encapsulated in that drawing had come from him and they'd had access to it at that point as well. But that's the thing is like even some of those uh, proto-Pictish depictions of uh, of of um of warriors and such, they have they have like beards on their chin as well. So it wasn't just uh it can't have been that uniform that they were all shaving their chins and stuff as well. Yeah, well we, we do Let alone see the pubes. Yeah, we do <laughs> see early stone carvings and actually, they, they portray a lot of similar images of warriors standing with a spear, with a ball on the butt of the spear. This seems to be a common practice yeah, in Ireland. Yeah, that was in the, in the drawing as well. Yeah. And they often have hair um, kind of at the back, but not on the front. So it's kind of flipping that Norse image. Hmm. Um, kind of um, like a receding hairline, it looks in a lot of places. And they have a shield. And a lot of the shields are either square or rectangular similar to what you've got in Ireland, like the Clanura shield, that leather-clad one. That's, I mean, they're pretty basic carvings, but that's kind of what we're seeing. So we're seeing spear work with interesting details, we're seeing shields, and we're seeing hairstyles. 
but that's as much as you can really make out. Yeah. We don't really get any more detail, unfortunately. Hopefully we'll find some more stones. Well, we're finding every year. One of these stones was found just last year. So there's always going to be new stuff coming out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you talked a little bit about, um, you mentioned Pictish kings. So let's move on to the to the, the period now where they unify as the Picts. Is that when they when they get a king? So the the king list, there's about 30 names on the king list. And it really, it starts a bit earlier, but it's a bit muddy. So it really kind of starts 4th, 5th century um, with the, the first kings coming in. Off the top of my head, there's a lot of names in that list. <laughs> and remembering them all is difficult. But it really, it, it starts with the early kings um, working its way through the lineage and really kind of ends with Kenneth McAlpin, who's the main one that everybody knows, kind of kind of unified the Picts and the Scots in the West and brought them together in one kingdom of Alba that changed the land to Scotland. Um, but as it goes through the early kings, you see through the lineages the way the kingship passed through the people. And so often the kings don't move from father to son. They move from father to nephew or father to brother type thing through the female line. So we see that matrilinear system come through the king list, um, which is completely unique to Europe of that time period. And leading theories is that it gives you a, a wider pool to choose a king from, because when you're stuck with it just going father to son, you can end up with poor suitors quite fast. Mm. But when you've got a wider pool, what it also does is when it comes from a tribal landscape that has lots of, uh, lots of tribes, it's a way to unify them together much easier. And, and this is really why uh, Pictland and Scotland did unify, is because you suddenly start having kings and their nephew, uh, you know, you could have a king of Pictland and their, his brother or his nephew is king of Scotland. And so as you start seeing lineages controlling both countries, that's when they start coming together. And so it did work. It did unify smaller tribes together and then it did eventually unify those two large polities together. And so it's kind of that king list just goes on and on kind of through the ages. Um, and what's interesting is some of the names are quite unique names, like Nechtin, which is where the modern name Nathan comes from. Um, we have uh, Angus is a very popular one. Um, uh, Kenneth comes from the, the king list. Uh, Brood and Drust and Talarkan. So these names are not the type of names you find in Scotland today. And they definitely fit more with the P-Celtic language we think they were speaking. So when you when you look at the evidence of Pictish language, it's in a couple of place names and that king list. And that's really all we have for, for Pictish names as well. So it kind of teaches a bit about the timeline. It teaches a little bit of the history. And it teaches a little bit of the language. And that's the core piece of evidence we have from the time period. We have very, very scarce, real bits of evidence of anything to do with Pictish history that's contemporary. Um, so that's the best one. And there's, I think there's there's several versions of the King List, and they don't all agree with each other. And that's another really interesting thing, to know who's writing those King Lists, yeah. and why they're deleting names or adding names to them as well. And whether that has something to do with proving lineages after the fact. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I... I was going to come to this a little bit later, but so we, we've been talking a little bit about the idea of where the poem, the Godothin, fits into all of this because we were saying how 
yeah. possibly I mean obviously I'm no specialist on this I, I'm I'm just a bloody peasant um you're saying about um Kenneth yeah and that that could be uh Kenethin, the uh as I, as I would call him in Welsh yeah so he was said to have come down from the old north which is uh you know around the sort of area um, as far as I know of like uh, Edinburgh which is you know Eden is mentioned in the Godothan and the he that he came down and uh conquered North Wales and all of the princes of North Wales or kings whatever you want to call them that they all um derive their royal lineage from him um I'm probably mixing lots of things up I should have looked this up more beforehand but um anyway talking about the Godothan how do you know how that fits in at all to to Pictish things? Well, it's quite central, <clears throat> but nobody really uh, knows about it or knows the content. I've, I mean, I've not really studied it as much as I should. But it's, I mean, Godothan was a was a kingdom in south of Pictland, so that that ranged around Dunedin, which is Edinburgh today, and so that whole region was not Picts, not Scots, not Strathclyde. It was its own kingdom. Mm. But it was in that unlucky position that it was sandwiched between Northumbria that had a strong king and Pickland that had a strong king. So it was in that that just pressure point. And and really it was um it was the push from the Northumbrians north and uh, to, to get up to Pickland, which kind of um uh kind of destroyed Godothan. Um that's as much as you really read about it when reading about Pickland, because it's just a footnote. Because it's not in Pictland, it's just when one of their neighbours suddenly disappears off the map and how it changes the political landscape. But the contents of it are never really gone into at all. Yeah. So you can probably tell us more about that. Well, I can I can say uh, pretty confidently that it's the first mention of Arthur as as we know him. Wow. Uh it says it says in one of the because it's a it's a battle praise poem, you know, commemorating uh those are the lost. In part of it, they say how uh, they say that I, I say this every time. I should remember this one warrior in particular. He gets praised in it, saying that he fought. Um, he 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 was like a fortress in the, on the battlefield. He just stood his ground and just gave him hell. And even though he did amazingly, he was no Arthur. That's how it's put. Wow. So yeah. he's saying like he was really good, but no, he was not Arthur. Wow. Um, so that much I can say with some, you know, some clarity. But uh, but one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up is because it is interesting that there's no doubt that the Godothan is composed in a P branch of the Celtic language. Yeah. Which obviously had been right next to to uh, Pickland, and maybe that shows that maybe that could have been their language as well. Absolutely. As opposed to the Q branch, which is the Irish, yeah, as well, which uh, which later came into Scotland. Well, we see the. We I see say, the sorry, I'm just going to say that later came in. There's evidence that it was already there as well, you know, and it's not just it. It was an invading thing. Yeah. It, was, it seems like there was always a merger of the two, or yeah. it was a grey area. But uh, yeah, it's just very grey. Before anyone gets angry with me saying that, <laughs> but we we do see the P Celtic in Pictland in place names. Yeah. So we've got we've got Aber and we've got Pitt, which so Aber's the the confluence and Pitt is a is a portion of land, and that's it's quite sad really that that's where the language really survives in just place names, and then mm. Gallicization came and took over a lot of the place names, 
but some remains, and it, it makes a lot of sense for, for P-Celtic to be there anyway. Um, and as you say, the, the, the Gaelic, the Q-Celtic, just took over, and that really didn't take over until the church came in, and when it Christianized, the the, the the church came from Christian, uh, like Celtic Christianity from Ireland, and it brought that Gaelic with it, and all the church sermons would have been in Gaelic, and then it became the upper class spoke Gaelic, and that's how it spread through Pictland, and that's when we see the disappearance of P Celtic. Because it does seem as well like there's evidence of the P P Celtic in the um, in the Oam as well. So there's a few Oam inscriptions. Yeah, there's just under 40 home inscriptions in Scotland. Some in the West, in, in, in traditional Daoreda, uh, quite a lot in Pictland, and, and, and a bigger portion of them, I think, in Orkney as well. Um, but it's difficult. Some of them are translated from Latin, some it looks from P-Celtic, some from Gaelic, and some from Norse. So it's it's a whole melting pot, really. It's hard to really pin a lot of it down. Mm. But some of it, some of the main inscriptions that are eligible, are definitely from P-Celtic. Nice. So um, we talked a little bit about um, we've talked a little bit about the the idea of them not necessarily be being uh, blue painted warriors running around half naked. Um, you know, at their technology and stuff. It seems to be a you know we do have some evidence that that is a little bit more ahead than people might think. Well, if you look at that that Pictish period I mentioned, the real the real meat of it, 6th to 9th century, um, when you've got, they've, they're kind of Christianizing, and up into the 9th century, you're getting overlap with Norse stuff as well, with the Vikings coming in. In that period is when we've got the biggest collection of stone carvings. And in those stone carvings, we see... Uh, really well-tailored hairstyles and beards, really well-tailored tunics and trousers and shoes and horsewear. And, and you can tell it's upper class because they've got the the kind of uh, blankets on the horses for sitting on, kind of like saddles. You can see the swords with the shapes they have. Um, you can see uh, on the St. Andrew's sarcophagus in particular, a lovely carved uh, sax sheath, all carved with knotwork. Um so you can see a lot of details that point to a highly defined culture contemporary with Saxon and Norse at the same time. Mm. So this whole naked barbar- barbarian image, it's definitely a bit of a myth. Whether it's it started in something real and they developed into this, this culture later on. But when you look at the hard evidence of stone carvings and material finds, when it gets a bit later, when it gets into the early medieval period, as I say, then there's definitely enough evidence to hold up and say... They were wearing finely made clothes. They had finely made things. Their appearance was very finely tailored. Um, so yeah, definitely they lose that barbarian image by then. You mentioned before about the Northumbrians um, sort of wiping out the Godothan along the way. Um, there was also a lot of, as well as conflict in between the Picts and the Northumbrians or the Saxons, they were also doing a lot of uh, intermarrying and stuff as well, weren't they? Yeah, so uh, the matrilinear system of the Picts works out really well because they'd often want king's blood to raise kings, but they didn't really mind if it didn't come from Picts. So quite a lot of the time you'd find uh, Northumbrian kings visiting or Pictish princesses visiting Northumbria and fathering kings 
um, from North Northumbrian men, and it created strong links. It's when the certain time periods where Northumbria um, and Pictland were allies, and it worked really well. And then there's certain times where it kind of turns against them as well. But there was strong alliances throughout it, mainly uh, when Pictland wanted to help defeat some of the southern kingdoms, uh, like uh, Strathclyde, which is just to the south of Dalreda in the kind of southwest Scotland. Then you see them teaming up with the Northumbrians and going after those kingdoms. So, yeah, it, it's all that uh, political alliance and kind of, um, yeah, using each other to each other's advantage. And then as soon as the toys are out of the pram, they're back at it again. <laughs> no way. I think there's also kind of interesting with that idea that you can see on the stones what the Northumbrians have uh, in their armor and so on that correlates with what we find in the archaeology, like, say, the Coppergate helmet from York. Uh, it looks very similar to, to uh, the helmets worn by the Northumbrians, if that's who they are, on the stones as well. Yeah, the, the that main uh, stone, uh, Aberlemno one, that's in the Aberlemno kirkyard, that's the main one for, we believe, depicts the Battle of Dunnekin. And you're right, what kind of denotes the Northumbrians is the helmets in it, because you never see helmets in Pictish artwork, and we have no finds of helmets. So it's, it, it's not um, saying they didn't have them, but it doesn't seem to be a thing. But you can see on that stone the difference between the two cultures on it. Um, and and if it is that Battle of Dunnekin that fits with the time period of the stone, then that is when uh, King Egfrith of Northumbria was defeated and his army sent back down to Northumbria. And that the stone depicts that. It's interesting to see how similar the cultures were, but those little details that set them apart. Mm. And you find that with a lot. I think uh, a lot of people expect the Picts to look wildly different. And when you look at Saxons next to Norse, Saxons next to the Picts, Picts next to the Irish. The clothing is all very, very similar. It's the jewellery that really sets it apart and the small details, so like like armour, like those helmets that we just don't find in Pictland. So it's always looking at those finer details for the differences. Yeah. This, um, we talked a little bit about this before, about the idea of uh, how common shoes would have been in that time because say um say for the high boots they would have been more for for horse riders because they're kind of showing off their footwear well it's the yeah so mostly when you see on the stone carvings which is our main evidence anyone that's on foot is generally barefoot yeah with a few exceptions of people wearing shoes and when the men are on horseback then they have shoes but they're not high boots they're, they are low shoes, but they have a really high back and a really high tongue to them, but they're split in the middle. And they're, they're quite elaborate. They're quite fancy too, but they're, they are, as you say, they're clearly showing those shoes off. Um, and then the only material find we have is the Dundurn shoe, which is completely over-engineered to anything of the time period. Yeah. So it's, but it's not the type of shoe you see on the stone carvings. That's what keeps baffling me. Is why we have this difference. The uh, the stone carvings they are, they are very pretty looking shoes, and it's not something you really see further south either. So there's, there's something going on with the shoe style. Definitely fancy. It's one of the reasons I bring it up is because I think that this also could contribute to the idea that they were barbarians. Um, it was a thing in Ireland as well that um, 
I've obviously, I wasn't there. I don't know if it's true. <clears throat> but I've heard that the the Irish, um, sometimes they wouldn't have been wearing shoes up until uh, like within the last hundred years as well at times because if you are living in a wet area, what's the point if they are just going to be getting going to be getting your feet wet i've got friends with grandfathers that never own shoes yeah it's, this, it's the same in scotland you, you find a lot throughout the ages if you live on the farms you don't need shoes and it's what we think of shoes of as in a modern context we expect we need our feet to be protected we're walking on pavement all the time uh, on hard surfaces and you know in cities glass all, all over the place and we expect a boot to last a, a year or two historically uh, leather shoes are very thin um, they're not made to protect your feet only from sharp stones and that's it and they're they're temporary items they're, they're the kind of things that you can make the kind of bog shoe style that's like a bag kind of tied onto the foot you can make those in an hour and when they wear through you just need another hide to make another pair and often they wouldn't bother tanning the leather a lot of the shoes we find are just rawhide so you're just taking the skin straight off the animal and making your shoes and it's 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 well, quick it's and easy warm. yeah it's temporary and when they wear out you make a new pair so it's not just thinking of something that covers your feet traditional footwear is totally different to what modern footwear is like and often they wouldn't even they wouldn't even need it and the only thing that scares me is if you're on a battlefield barefoot and there's blades all over the floor hmm. that's when i'd definitely be wanting some shoes on be walking very slowly <laughs> yeah So let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about the art styles. So we talked about. Am I right in saying that they're known as style one, style two, and style three? They are. Um, archaeologists are wanting to start moving on from that, but I don't really know what they're moving on to. It's yeah. just the, the the classifications are the kind of the lines are getting blurred, and there's new evidence that's pushing those classifications out a little bit. It's right in the art style. It's more the time periods that keep shifting. Yeah, but you're right. It's kind of classified into three styles. You've got the the really early style, which is pagan, but it's just incised in the stone, so it's just scratched into the stone as simple line work. Class two, which is when you start seeing relief and stuff, um, and then I think class three is when it's the relief and it's Christian. So you kind of have that three stages to it. Yeah, well, I got to say that I'm. Well, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated with the all, well, all of the styles. I think they're all incredibly beautiful in their own right because they speak such a powerful language. What I think is really nice about them is that pretty much, I think it's fair to say that within all of them, they take on less of a stylistic approach to uh, say the certainly the the British Latin stuff of the Iron Age. And or or all of that basically over stylized to the point where it's difficult to see any creatures, yeah. any naturalism within them, and and um, same with like yeah, with the later Scandinavian stuff or any of the Scandinavian stuff that the the Pictish approach was very much to show naturalism alongside the uh, you know the um, the pattern work. They had the flow to the artwork. Oh, you say it's, it's it's not abstract. It's showing physiology, but in a beautiful style, and I think it shows how important the nature and the animals was to them. And uh, they were still very symbolic in their stone carvings. 
So size plays a big thing on every stone. Um, when you look at all the carvings that's on a stone, they always range in size to what's most important to what's least important. And that's what really baffles you on some stones, where something you think couldn't be important at all is the biggest, most badass thing on that stone. And then something you you think in a modern context would be really important. It's just a footnote. Mm. And it's we don't know, we can't read those stones anymore. People would have looked at these stones and been able to read them like a book and would have known what certain symbols stood for and what why those animals were on the stone and what other things stood for and, and collectively what the context was. And we can't read that now. We can just get baffled by the sizes and, and what the symbols mean that we really have no idea. At what point do the... Do the V-Rods and the Crescent Moons start coming in? Is that straight away or is it in the second? They're straight away. They're straight away, You yeah. see them very early, like in the Weems Pictish Caves on the east coast in Fife. Mm. They have Crescent V-Rods scratched in. Because there's, there's something that, again, they would have been completely aware of what that meant, but it's kind of lost to us. So the V-Rods seem, seems to represent a broken arrow. That's what, it's, that's what it's called because it, the terminals on the on the rod look mm. like each end of an arrow but how symbolic that is we just don't know yeah it's, it's really annoying that we don't know and same with the the Pictish beast the fact I've heard some really wild explanations of what people think that is Jim on an earlier episode said that he thinks you know they, it, it could possibly be the uh, the Loch Ness monster yeah. and, and I, you know I think that he's putting up a good argument for it you know, it could be the symbol of the the pagan belief. Who knows? But uh, but I've heard people over the years say that they think it's. What did I hear? I had a duckbill platypus once. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, we don't have those in Scotland, so. Or did we? Or did we? Yeah. Yeah. Could be something extinct. You know, because all the other animals are so beautifully carved. Yeah. There's no mistaking what they are. So the beastie. That's why it's such an enigma. I mean, I've I've said this to you before, but I think it could be, it could possibly be that that obscure creature that's in the uh, the the Iron Age British stuff of like you know Souther in the in the island because there's breadcrumbs. Mm? What, there's breadcrumbs. There is lean to what that could be. Yeah, there is. I mean, but but who knows? We don't bloody know. But it's, again, that's my theory. Yeah. Yeah. But it is it is frustrating that we don't have have references to it. And there's there's also, is there the character, with the crossbow? Yeah. So he's carved. Uh, well, I'd I'd like to say four times. There's three three very detailed carvings, and there's a fourth one that could couldn't be. So we'll go with three. And what's really interesting is he's always kneeling in the brush with a crossbow. He's always wearing a hood like a hunting hood, and he's always hunting an animal, but in each three carvings, the animal's different. Mm. And so there's theories that this was either some kind of legend or a god. It's some kind of figure that people knew. When people saw that carving, they knew what it meant, but the animal doesn't seem to play as big of a part of it. And it's kind of nice to see it's not a story about someone hunting a specific beast, you know. Uh, the the god hunting the boar it's with different animals that's kind of nice to see and it's really nice to point out the clothing as well because the hood is the only garment we have from that period the orkney hood which we saw on on, on orkney well the, the replica on orkney and we've seen in the national museum and then you you see these these hunters wearing that hood 
And so that points out really good uh, evidence for the clothing, but also what was going on with the the uh, crossbows and, and the hunting and why there's three carved and they're each slightly different. There's a theme there. Yeah. We just don't know what it is. So I heard you say that the uh, the cow is also very common on the stones. That was more common in Burghead up yeah. in the north in Murray. Um, at the fort there, it was one of the, the largest Pictish-Hill forts. And they believe there was 30 carved bulls set into the face of the walls. And these would have been really impressive walls. Meters high, meters wide. Um, and then as the fort deteriorated, these stones were all cast into the sea. And we've recovered, I believe, six of them. Hmm. Some of them just in fragments. But bulls were definitely the main symbol up in the north. Yeah. And also the uh, the boar is... That's a very famous one. But how common is that actually in the stones? You see it quite a lot, actually. You see quite a lot of boar. Of course, we've got the, the Danad boar um, in the west in Dalreda. And then in Pictland... It kind of, it's never so much of a prominent feature. There's there's two or three carvings where it is all about the boar. But often you'll see boar in the background of stuff. You'll see a lot of Celtic crosses with a boar on the side or worked in somewhere. So they're, they are a bit more common. Mm. Yeah. It's very cool. I, lo- I love how the, um, how the tendrils and the swirls are all added into... The very natural physiology of the of those creatures when they are depicted they just flow right yeah it's a nice mashup of the two what you also see is that the serpents how prominent serpents are in pickland but they're not depicted in the way any other culture depicts them at that time they're always depicted with a kind of z-rod running through them or something and i mean we don't have great big serpents in scotland just little adders maybe we had something a bit more prominent that's one that's always baffled me, is mm. what the serpent meant to people. Yeah, that's something I've I've noticed. Um, some Scots getting very defensive about when when I suggest the idea of maybe not necessarily the serpents, but when it comes to the Kelpies, the the water horses that they uh, yeah. were of Roman influence, and I've heard a couple of people go like, "Fuck no." It's definitely ours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think Roman influence. Yeah, that's that's more than feasible. Yeah. yeah. I have no idea, obviously. Yeah. But it... It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And a, and a lot of the art style, you can see blend over from Roman stuff. You can see the why the stone carving would have started up and, and a lot of stuff spreading. So, yeah. I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. Well, I always think with all of that, like it's usually a bit of a sore point. People wanna don't, don't want to think that that the Romans had had a had had an effect on something that's so close to their heart. Of course, I have the same thing, you know, with the Welsh stuff as well, or at least I used to. And whereas now I've gone a bit more accepting of it and thinking it's, it's something that adds to it and you know embellishes it. Yeah, it's just part of the history, and it and it shows blend between styles. And it, yeah, it is what it is. We ha- we have to appreciate it for the history that it is, not always the origin. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk about the end of the Picts. Right. So the the end of the Picts starts coming in that kind of eighth ninth century. So they're not really. What's really happening is they're they're getting stronger. They're they're a stronger culture. Gallic has taken over through the church, 
and so the elite are all uh, Gaelic. They are, they they're often having Gaelic names by then. You have Kenneth McAlpin, kind of rises through the Scots. So he he was a Scot, but they believe possibly his mother was maybe a Pict, and that's why he was able to kind of uh, bring them both together because he had a foot in both lands, and. As he rose to power, um, bringing them together, you've got Vikings on the scene. And so with Viking raiders always comes chaos. And the the Vikings really really did a number on Pictland uh, and Scotland. And we see a lot when the Vikings come in, they're raiding a lot on the west. And actually Pictland keeps having to send aid over to the Scots um, to help defend. Um, I think this is probably something that helped push them together as well. Um so you've got the Picts and the Scots holding together against the Norse. And then the last mention of the Picts is in, I believe, 927. Sorry, I mean 904. And it's in Strathorn Valley, which is where I live, where you've been. And all the mention is, it's an Irish mention in the annals, and it says uh, a battle fought between the Picts and Vikings in Strathorn. And that's it. That is the last mention of the Picts. And soon after that, um, as Pictland and Scotland come together, the the church writings start mentioning the Kingdom of Alba. And that's when it becomes, it just slowly merges into Scotland. And what we see there is the Pictish people are still the same, but as Gaelic takes over the upper class, it slowly starts bleeding down into the lower class. And you just see that Pictish identity slowly kind of fade away. They're still the same people. Just names and places change. And as it becomes Scotland, it just starts to change then on. Mm. And that's when it gets into that really crazy melting pot of you've got that that 10th century happening. And then you get to that 11th century. And that's when you completely throw the book out the window in Scotland. Because that century, that that 11th century, we we can't tell when stuff's earlier and we can't really tell when stuff's later. So there's a whole range of stone carving that's definitely not Pictish, but it's definitely not later. And it's really hard to try and fit it into any context. And that's that little century where Scotland has become in Scotland because it's taken influence from the Saxons. It's taken influence from the Irish. It's taken influence from the, the, the Vikings. It's taken influence from the Normans. And it's just pulling all of that together and forging. It's kind of reforging itself again. And kind of Scotland emerges and picks just kind of fade away any mention of them. Well, they had a good run, though. They had a good run. <laughs> and they left a lot behind a lot of interesting stuff and uh, an incredible sort of um, mystical vibe behind them about who they were and where they went and everything. It's given us a challenge to kind of pour through it all. And yeah. I think it's going to baffle us for centuries. We'll probably never know the answers to these questions. But it's just a really kind of enigmatic part of our history and it's nice to show at the those time periods just how strong a culture it was it's just a bit of a mystery but it holds up against any culture kind of contemporary culture of the time yeah nice well you mentioned just now that you live in the valley that all of that happened yeah yeah so i will just say that people can uh, contact you to go on leather courses with you to come visit you and do them with you and they will get one hell of a history lesson, yeah. as you well know. Yeah. Yeah, great. No, I thoroughly enjoyed it when I did it. And on this note, I'll also say that you will be more of a feature on these podcasts as well. And, and so uh, 
and and uh, as well as that if anyone has any questions that they would like to for us to elaborate on then they can just uh, come in, comment on all of this and we will do our best to try and address them yeah and check out the northern fire blogs that we've been doing yeah kind of filling in the extra details behind the context yeah yeah it's probably a little bit more um informative than just us rambling <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right well thanks man i really appreciate that that's good it's always fun talking history yeah until next time cheers